I'm not going to read all the verses of the 35th chapter, but we're going to cover the 35th chapter in its totality. The reason why is we've covered, we've covered all the different elements that are going into the tabernacle in previous chapters, so some of this is repetitive. Remember, Moses goes up the mountain, and he's, he receives the instruction and what the dimensions of the tabernacle look, look like, what the important elements that go in it, such as the uh, Ark of the Covenant and all the different things, the mercy seat, all these things that would go into the tabernacle. But we want to look at what is, spiritually speaking, what is the Lord saying to us? Uh, much as he was speaking to the children of Israel, the emphasis here is two things. One, it's on the tabernacle, but two, the emphasis of the 35th chapter is what the people did in obedience to providing for the tabernacle and in obedience to the laws and regulations that the Lord had given. So I'm not going to read all the verses because we covered a lot of these things in detail, like the lampstand, like the, uh, the garments for the priesthood in previous messages. Uh, but let's go ahead and read, and I'll just kind of tell you when I'm going to skip forward to another passage. But let's start with verse 1 in chapter 35. Then Moses gathered all the congregation, the children of Israel, together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Very, very serious, and that actually happened. Uh, But once that happens... Uh, very few people are ever willing to doubt God's word after that. Verse 3, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Verse 4, and Moses spoke to all the congregation, the children of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord commanded, not requested, this is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linens and goat's hair, rams dyed uh, red, badger skins of acacia wood, oil for light, uh, goes on, talks about the different things that will be used, and the breastplate. Uh, verse 10, all the gifted artisans are among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Again, the gifted artisans, they were to go and come and bring their talents and do what the Lord has asked them to do. Uh, verse 14, also the lampstand for the light. I, re- I bring that back up because, again, we know that uh, the essence of the lampstand, even today, is that the church would be the light of Christ in the world. And so the lampstand, the importance of it, Jesus, of course, is the great light, but he lights our life. And the oil for the lamp, we talked about that in the past. In verse 19, the garments of ministry for ministering, the holy garments you and I are to wear white garments of the righteousness of Christ. We can't buy those. We can only receive those by grace, right? We can't go buy righteousness, but we receive it by grace. They would receive these garments that were given. Verse 21, uh, 21, then everyone whose heart was stirred. By the way, God wants everyone's heart stirred. But everyone's heart was, everyone whose heart was stirred, certainly some were not, but everyone whose spirit was willing, a stirred and a willing heart, a willing spirit in the Lord, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for its service and for the holy, holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and they brought earrings and nose rings and rings from necklaces and all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And we know there's precious 
Metals have, pre, uh, have significant monetary value, but they brought these things willingly. Their hearts were stirred, and they wanted to give back to the work of the Lord and what God was going to do in building this tabernacle. Verse 25, And all the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun. I don't think as many women know how to do that today. But anyway, that's, uh, and they, they spun all these things and they worked hard and they made these things. And all the women whose hearts were stirred with wisdom. Isn't that great? God only stirred their heart, but He gave wisdom. Uh, to spin yarns of goat's hair, which would take a lot of wisdom. Verse uh, 29, the children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord, all the men and the women whose hearts were willing, again I'm verse 29, to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done, not suggested, commanded to be done. Verse 30, and uh, the Lord said to the children of Israel, see the Lord has called by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Same tribe Jesus would come from. And he was filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. He was given by the Lord a great understanding of working with metals and putting things uh, together because you would need the wisdom of God, the things that God had showed Moses on the top of the mountain. And goes on designing artistic works and the cutting of jewels in verse 33. And verse 34, and he was put in his heart the ability to teach, not only to do it, but to teach others how to do it. Think discipleship. It's a foreshadowing what the ministry of Jesus to the apostles would be. Discipleship. Verse 35, and he's filled them with the skill to do all manner of work. And the engraver and the designer, and it goes on, those who do every work, and those who design the artistic work. But again, verse 31 is key, and he filled them with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. For every one of these tasks, the Spirit of God was given and given the people, but only those who had the stirred hearts, the willing hearts, and then they were given the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the sevenfold Spirit of the Lord that Isaiah speaks of and is also referenced in the book of Revelation. Turn with me real briefly over to Romans chapter 12. Interestingly enough, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday will be in Romans chapter 12. Those of you that have come on Wednesday nights, you know we're in Romans. And the Lord just laid on my heart to kind of just show a little snippet of Romans here as it relates to Exodus 35. Romans chapter 12, and look at verse 1, you know it well. Most, most Christians know this verse, even if they don't know where it is, they know they've heard it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your forced service, reasonable service. It's more than reasonable. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, there's that fresh start, renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I, I don't have time to go through all of this, but if you continue to go through the 12th chapter, uh, it, what we see in the first 15, 16 verses uh, is really a model of how the church would serve 
the body of Christ, serve in this world, serve one another as living sacrifices. What would living sacrifices look like in the New Testament body of Christ? And we can kind of mirror that up with what we see back in chapter 35 of Exodus. Let's go back to Exodus 35. And you can hold your place there. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Living Sacrifices. Living Sacrifices. One of golf's immortal moments came when a Scotsman, any Scotsmen's here? But when a Scotsman demonstrated the new game of golf to President Ulysses S. Grant. You guys remember him from history? Went from being the union leader of the military to president. Well, this Scotsman carefully places the ball on the tee, and he took a mighty swing at it. The club hit the turf and scattered dirt all over the president's beard and the surrounding vicinity. How embarrassing, huh? While the ball placidly waited on the tee, again the Scotsman swung and he again missed. Our president waited patiently through six tries. Then he quietly stated, men had such poignant statements back then, then he quietly stated, there seems to be a fair amount of exercise in this game, but I fail to see the purpose of the ball. (laughs) You and I, you and I can try the same thing again and again and again in our own strength. We can keep swinging in our own strength, and worse, in our own desires. Instead of the willing heart and the Spirit of the Lord, our own desires, our own strength, and we will not find any success by God's standards. You may find some success by the world's standard, but you'll find no success by God's standard, and you won't find any fulfillment and resident peace in your life, swinging wildly at the Christian life with your own strength, your own desires, doing what you want rather than the commandments of the Lord. Unless we present our lives as living sacrifices, we will not know, we will not know the joy and the peace and the purpose in our lives that comes with surrender and obedience. Now, to some people, that's just words. Oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Things are going fine for me right now. Or, we can continue to swing in futility at the golf ball of the Christian life, making a fool of ourselves and putting dirt all over everybody else around us, right? Remember Abraham and Lot? Perfect example of two men, both knew the Lord, one swinging wildly by doing whatever he wanted to do, the way he wanted to do it, and the other one in perfect harmony and reservation and submission to the Lord. Abraham lived his life as a living sacrifice, didn't he? He even laid down his son on an altar. Not his brand new car, his son. Not his house, his son. His only son that he had waited a hundred years for. Now you had Lot, his nephew, who was not surrendered. He wanted the world, didn't he? He was swinging wildly, not in submission to the Lord. He wasn't surrendering. Even Abraham had to save him, rescue him once. If you're taking notes this morning, 
I've divided our text into three sections we'll look at daily, delighted, and directed. Daily, delighted, and directed. You know, see, the Lord, He wants us to surrender our time, all of it. Our treasure, all of it. Our talents and gifts and abilities, all of it, to Him. And when we give these back to the Lord, when we give these things back, He gave them to us, we give them right back. I've said it before, I'll say it again. When we get to heaven, what will we do with the crowns Jesus just gave us? Stick them in our back pocket? What will we do with them? We'll present them straight back to Him. Even in heaven, this principle continues that whatever God gives, we give it right back. You will not in heaven receive a crown, and everyone else is throwing their crown at the feet of Jesus. You say, keep it this bad boy. This is nice. I'm not giving this back. You gave it. I'm, I'm not giving, but you gave it to me. Your natural response under the Spirit of the Lord will be to give it straight back. So why is it not that way here? It's not. We still have the flesh to deal with here. Heaven, there'll be no flesh. You'll think like the Lord in all ways. But once we give these things back to the Lord, we know that it requires dying to our flesh, doesn't it? It's not easy to give them back, to die to our flesh. God says, I gave you 24 hours it belongs to a day. It belongs to me. Really? Yes. I gave you these abilities. They belong to me. I gave you that treasure. It belongs to me. But once we do this and we stop trying to satisfy ourselves, we'll see the power and the wisdom and the resident presence of the Holy Spirit flowing in our lives. We don't, we can get so warped in our understanding of what God's given us, and there is really bad doctrine out there right now, taught not just in the United States, but all over the world, uh, this whole prosperity teaching that God wants you to be a multimillionaire so you can explain to people how good God is, which the apostles knew nothing of the sort, did they? Jesus knew nothing of the sort. He said he had no place to lay his head, so we know that that wasn't his earthly example. Now, God does bless some people financially or different than others, but we can become so warped in thinking that God is supposed to lavish us instead of us lavish the Lord that even James says you can start to pray amiss that you may spend what you have on your own pleasures. And he said, this, is, this isn't the God who has saved you. It's not about that you would actually be able to uh, pile up for yourself your own pleasure. It's that you would give your lives to the tabernacle. What is tabernacle? That God would be among us, dwelling. You would actually give your life that God would dwell among your friends your neighbors, in your house. And these are the things that God wants to do. Let's look at these three things this morning. First, this daily uh, aspect of the text. Moses told the children of Israel that they would have six days and the seventh day, would, six days to work, and the seventh day would be holy unto the Lord for a holy convocation. Now, uh, this g- gathering together, we know that, uh, well, not here, but uh, other places in the uh, in the Pentateuch, it's called a convocation. So the people would come together to worship on the Sabbath or the seventh day. They would come, they would rest in the Lord, but they would also worship the Lord together. And they weren't to do any work on that day. Now, the Lord gives the guidelines here. How many days to work? 
Six, seventh day, rest and worship. God is the one that created the seven-day week. He's the one that gives the time, he gives the 24-hour day. God's saying to the children of Israel, you have seven days, and I have a plan for how many of them? Four? All seven. What God is saying is, I own your calendar. Before, who owned their calendar? The Egyptian slave masters. That's who used to own their calendar. Pharaoh would say, I tell you when to get up. I tell you how many bricks to make. I tell you when to go to bed. And I tell you if you can actually... Remember, they wanted to go worship their God, and Pharaoh said, no, you will not go worship your God. I don't believe in your God. You're not going to worship your God. But the Lord is the one that owns our calendar. Every single second comes from Him. If you're alive this morning, every second you've had today came from God as a gift. Whether we acknowledge it as a gift or not, whether we recognize it, every single second comes from Him. Now, six of those days were commanded to work. Ever since God created man, work in itself was not a curse, right? Six days you should work. When Adam and Eve were created, they were already, Adam was already tending the garden before sin. So work is not a curse. One of the things, fathers, we have to teach our sons and our daughters is that work in and of itself is good. Jesus was busy about his father's business. Jesus worked unto the Lord. Work is not a curse. The reason why we have such a lazy society today and getting lazier year by year is many people believe that work is the worst curse of all. Work isn't the curse. It's the thorns, it's the diseases, it's all the things you battle against that was the curse. Work in and of itself, when we get to heaven, we're going to serve the Lord for the rest of eternity. Work's not a curse. There's things that, that we fight against in work, right? People that don't like us, things that don't go well, it's a fallen world, you work hard and you, you hurt your leg, all these things, those are part of the curse, but work itself is not a curse. We're commanded to work. You know, Paul reaffirms this in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we are with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. You can't have lifetime unemployment benefits. You cannot have all the things that you desire, and I say, thank you, the rest of you, for working and giving to me. We're all required to work. Yeah, I've told people when they lose their job, I've told men that are Christians, say, hey, if you've lost your job, until you get a job, continue to fight, work hard to get a job. Let's say you're receiving, I'm not going to get into whether you should, there's people that say you shouldn't receive even a second of unemployment benefits, and there's people that say you, there's nothing wrong. I'm, I'm not getting into that what, one way or the other. Here's what I will say. While you're looking for a new job, go serve somebody, and God will actually open doors much faster. I found it to be true. If you do that, if you say, you know, I'm called to work, I'm going to teach my kids that even while I'm putting out my resumes and trying, I'm going to go mow somebody's grass, that a lady at the church that just, or I'm going to go serve somebody else. Work in that way opens new doors, I'm telling you. God will, God will do amazing things. Now, work is never easy, though, is it? There's no such thing as easy jobs. I know some of us look at, they got the really easy job, I got the hard job. There's no such thing as easy jobs. Some jobs are easier to people because they just really enjoy what they do. And we'll get into uh, that in our last section a little bit more about what specifically God's called us to do. 
But if you're fortunate to have a five-day work week, which is kind of the American norm, I know there's a lot of different schedules. There's people that have third shift, second shift, people that work weekends and all. But we also have this Monday through Friday well-known five-day work week. If you're fortunate enough to have that, and not everybody does, uh, you likely have that six-day is to catch up and work around the house, right? The things that just didn't get done Monday through Friday, right? The vacuuming needs to take place. If you're a guy, the yard. You have to go work in the yard. Now, some guys like this. I've never understood why they totally enjoy it. Uh, although my dad used to enjoy it when I was young. The older I get, the more I enjoy it. And I start to realize why. It's quiet out there. You know, you can go out there. And the older you get, you realize this isn't so bad. It's birds and me. And, you know, I don't, have, I don't have a boss talking to me. I don't have the, you know, all these different things. It's not that much distraction. The lawnmower drowns out everything. Can't even think sometimes. But I read this, and I think it's, it, it, it underscores that no work is easy, not even the Saturday work. This is uh, things that um, someone had learned over the years about taking care of the yard on Saturdays. Nothing ever looks like it does on the seed packet. Your lawn, your lawn is always slightly bigger than your desire to mow it. Whichever garden tool you want will always be at the back of the shed behind all the others. The only way to truly ensure rain is to make sure you give your garden a good soaking. Weeds grow at precisely the rate you pull them out. Autumn follows summer. Winter follows autumn. Drought follows planting. The only way to guarantee some color year-round is to buy a colorful garden gnome. However bare the lawn is, however bare your lawn is, grass will still appear between the cracks between the patio and paving stones. Annuals mean you will be disappointed once every year. (laughs) Whenever weeding, the best way to make sure you're removing a weed and not a valuable plant is to pull on it. If it comes out of the ground easily, it's a valuable plant. (laughs) And I I can attest to all of these. I I actually learn a lot about Christian living gardening because I know that, that planting and growing and harvesting all are hard work. Who fights against the sower? The enemy sows among the sower, doesn't he? There's always a fight. Work is not easy. Six days, the children of Israel will have to work hard. It's not, it's not going to be easy. They're going to sweat. Work isn't wrong. It's good. It teaches us a lot. It teaches us about perseverance. Our work ethic is a testimony. All of you in here, men and women, your testimony among the workplace should be you're the hardest workers there. Or at least you're among, I don't mean that the highest rent, but you're among what people would say, these are the people that are the 20% that get almost everything done. Isn't that always the case? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. This, that the body of Christ, wherever you are, should look like that. As I mentioned, we live in an increasingly lazy society, and I think we've all been influenced by it. And we're teaching our kids a lot of times less about work ethic We've actually made things just super, super easy sometimes when teaching to start something, complete it, finish it is a good thing. Jesus talked about when he came, he finished the work, didn't he? He didn't just start it. He finished the work. You and I need to start work, finish work, stay faithful to it. It teaches those around us. It influences the unsaved world and seeing, wow, they work hard and they don't complain while they work. 
This is the mantra of the unsaved world. Even when they work hard, a lot of times, they'll do a lot of gossip, complaining, and ripping those above them. This ought not be us, right? Six days to work, but work with the right heart attitude and teaching our children these things as well. That there's more than that, though. The seventh day, though, God says, after you've worked really hard, and you're good and tired, and you need a rest, come rest with your brothers and sisters, the children of Israel, and later the body of Christ. Come rest with them together and let me feed you. Let me be the source of your worship. You'll get more strength by giving that day to the Lord than you will by saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that day so I can really kick back, right? People that don't know the Lord, that's exactly the way they think. Our commitment to gather with the saints in and of itself is a testimony. We're not to be like those that don't gather. The scriptures command us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but even more so as we see the Lord's return, right? That we would gather together with other believers exactly the way they were supposed to do it in the, uh, in the ancient uh, Israel, although we don't do it on the Sabbath, although some do. Our brother Sam, his church meets on a Saturday, which is for them the Sabbath. We meet on the first day of the week, the day of the Lord's resurrection on a Sunday. But whatever day, the specific fellowship of believers, they've picked a day to rest in the Lord together. And I know things that things interrupt that at times. There's emergencies that come up. There's all of a sudden you got called, you've got to finish something before Monday. But the general principle remains that we keep that day reserved unto the Lord. And it's a good commitment that not only keeps us in right harmony with the Lord and with each other, but it's also a testimony to the outside world. The outside world thinks of Sunday. Now, I, I know how this is. I'm, I live in a pretty decent-sized neighborhood. I've gotten to know a lot of our neighbors. We've got a few believing neighbors, but we've also got many that, that don't. And I know that if they've worked hard Monday through Friday, and then Saturday they get that stuff done in the yard, and they're running the kids to soccer, and they're running the kids over here, and eight trips to Walmart on the Saturday, and all these things that you've got to fit in, right? You always forget something when you go there. You will never get it all. You will forget something every time. I, that's another side, step, side point. So all these things, you, get, you work really hard on Saturday. Oh, Sunday. If you don't know the Lord, you can sleep in. The look of grass is cut. Read the entire paper. Right? Go bass fishing. I used to have, I used to have a coworker that... It, He'd, uh, he'd always, he knew I was pastoring a church while I was still uh, uh, at Microsoft, and he would be like, yeah, I heard the guilty church bells when I was on the golf course, right? I'm like, who said they were guilty? Uh, someone's speaking to you, right? But, you know, that, that's the world, that, that, that Sunday is about them. The Sabbath is not about God, it's about them, and the Lord said, this will not be you. I don't know what Egypt thought about the seven-day week, but I know the Lord says, for you Israelites and for us, the body of Christ, I want you to work hard, and then I want you to then sit down and worship with me. That we wouldn't be, uh, that we, you know, first of all, the more affluent and upwardly mobile people get, and the more free time on their calendar, that ends up being, if you don't know the Lord, really time for bad stuff to happen, right? 
I mean, a lot of our, a lot of our young people, the fact that we don't... If you go to other parts of the world um, where kids are... You know, if, they're, if it's an agricultural society, a rural society, where they need everyone's help to actually plant and harvest, you have a lot harder time getting into problems on Facebook or all kinds of things on the internet. Of course, they don't see any of that stuff if they're, if they're in really third world conditions and they're trying to just put food on the table. There's not the time to get into all that stuff. And I know that's not a Bible verse that idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's not in the Bible. But there's some truth to that, isn't there? That we wouldn't be idle, and then when we are idle, we're resting in the Lord. And God says, if you do these things, you will walk justly with your God. You will begin to cultivate the work of the Spirit. Now, what takes place next here, if we look at delighted, that was kind of their daily, uh, God kind of giving them the requirements of their calendar, how they would spend their time. We see this delighted offering. Uh, Do those two words go together? Delighted offering. They were delighted to give out of their wallet to the Lord. Say, now a lot of people, all the church wants is money. You ever heard that? That is true of some churches. There are churches that all they want is your money. There are preachers that all they want is your money and their private jet and their Rolls Royce attest to it. Right? And then they'll give you the false claim that that's God's blessing and anointing. It's not. It's greedy for gain. Peter talks about it. James talks about it. Jesus talked about it. So these are the things that... Uh, that so there, it, don't, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Giving to the Lord and giving to the ministry of the Lord has always been commanded. What did, what did the Lord say to Moses? This is the thing which the Lord commanded. You will be a giving people, giving unto the work of the Lord. In this case, building the literal tabernacle. Yes, Israel would also be required, as Malachi uh, attest to when they decided to stop doing it, they would be required to give the tithes and the offerings. But they were to do it with a willing, thankful heart. Yes, God wants everyone to do it, but he wants us to do it. It's not to say, uh, God's saying, well, if you don't want to do it, just don't do it. He's saying, no, I want you to do it. I want you to do it, and I want you to change your heart and do it. That would be like for me saying to my kids, I want one of you to go out and wash the car. But if you don't want to, just don't do it. No, I want you to do it, and I want you to do it with the right heart. Don't complain. Just do it and say, yes, this is an opportunity to walk in obedience to the Lord. You know, every penny we have is a blessing from God. True? We know this is true. Jesus would even take something as monetarily not that valuable, a few fishes and loaves, and hold it up and say, Father, we thank you for it. The great thing is God can take and multiply a few pennies. George Mueller, when he would receive uh, offerings for building the uh, orphanages there in Bristol, England, uh, he made a ledger of every single offering that he received for building the orphanage. Uh, Every now and then he would get very large offerings from like a wealthy Christian banker or something like that. But he recorded them the same exact way as when he would have like a poor child that gave like six little uh, English coins that were worth like six cents in our money. He recorded them all the same. Because God, it's not how much people have to give, 
It's are they giving in obedience to the Lord? The amount is not important to God. From the sense of he's not more impressed with a billionaire's $100,000 gift, we know that Jesus, when he saw the widow give a little mite, he said, surely she's given more than anyone else here because she gave out a great destitute need. And he didn't rebuke her and didn't say, you shouldn't hold, do not give that. You can't afford to give that. Keep that in your pocket so you can buy bread tomorrow. He didn't rebuke it. He was reaffirming that those who have a giving heart, God would provide for them. He's never seen the righteous beg for bread. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Exactly the children of Israel. They had to be willing. They had to be purposing, say, yes, Lord, you want us to give, and we will give to purpose in their heart, not grudgingly of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. He wants all of us to be cheerful givers. Remember the Israelites, they had recently been willingly giving to build a massive gold calf. Right? Isn't it interesting that no one has a problem with people who are willing to give a lot of money for things that will have no eternal purpose? But if you say, but God wants you to give to him. Oh, 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 I need to pray about that, brother. I need to pray about that one. That flat screen TV I just bought, no prayer was needed. The discount at Best Buy was all the confirmation I needed. <laughs> it was marked down, it was $50 off, and only for that day. I didn't need to stop and pray. The $50 discount said, I must have it, we need that, it's got more pixels, blah, 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 whatever it is. Hey, how would you like to give to the brothers and sisters in Egypt or Syria? I need to pray about that. Our budget's really tight. Isn't that sad? The children of Israel could have said this. They could have said, hey, we had already given a bunch of gold to that calf. We don't have much left. And God says, that's your problem, that you gave all to the calf, that I smashed into powder and then had you drink it. Now whatever's left, pony up, it belongs to me. And yet their response is wonderful. They were not angry about it. They weren't saying, how dare you ask us? They knew who had given them the whole hoard of money when they left Egypt. God. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Job said that it was the Lord's to begin with. They had been given this. They had willingly built an idol and people will willingly give to something all the time. Everyone here willingly gives to something all the time. Whether it be to Starbucks, whether it be to Target, whether it be to Dick Sporting Goods, whether it be to anything that you like, everyone willingly gives to something all the time. And God says, what about me? Are you going to willingly give the same with ease, without thinking about it? Because it's not a grudge. You say, Lord, this belongs to you. Spiritually speaking, the same spirit of thankful and grateful giving that we see in the wilderness for the building of the tabernacle, the same heart that they had, they gave more than enough they were so excited to be part of the giving, so thankful. Why were they so thankful? God hadn't consumed them. Remember? They were glad that they were alive in the Lord and said, Lord, the least we can do, we had made a mockery of you when Moses went up the hill. The least we can do is give back, spiritually speaking, the same grateful attitude that giving the tabernacle has been entrusted to us for building the body of Christ and reaching the lost with the gospel. The same spirit of faithful, thankful giving has been entrusted to us as it was to them 
thousands of years ago. Jesus, the greatest giver of all, would you agree? Jesus, the greatest giver of all eternity, set the model. He freely gave his own body. He could have brought gold from heaven, but that wouldn't have helped us, would it? Streets are made of gold. He could have rolled up a few streets and brought that, but instead he gave everything, his own blood, every other gift. Now think about it. Every other gift seems rather insignificant after Jesus, doesn't it? And it helps us put in perspective that all these things that we try and hold on to rather than willingly give the Lord aren't that significant. C.T. Studd said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If he really is God and if he gave everything, nothing would be too much for me to give to him. And Jesus made that claim at times when he told the rich young ruler, Sell everything and follow me. I don't want a tithe, Jesus said. I'm telling you, sell it all. Now, he doesn't say that every time, but he'll test the heart, won't he? To see, are we still willing to give to idols but not the Lord? Which are we willing to give to? You know, when you think about it, all offerings, offerings of tithes, free will offerings, all offerings to the Lord are free will in this sense. You have to purpose in your heart whether you will obey God or not. True? Even the salvation call is a free will. You're commanded to be saved, the book of Acts, that all, I'm sorry, Romans, all are commanded to be saved, but you're also, Jesus says, come, all who are willing, come. Every offering is, in a sense, a free will offering. I was listening to Dr. Charles Stanley this week. He said, you don't have to tithe. You can be disobedient if you want to. Hey, Dr. Stanley said it, not me. He's been around a long time. But I agree with him. I agree with him. No one, ever, I, I, no one ever had to teach that to me when I first got saved in 1995. I was reading my own Bible, and it was so clear to me that I must give that which belongs to the Lord. It was even before I'd ever had anyone teach it to me, long before I was a pastor. I only became a pastor you know, seven years ago, and again, the first six years were bivocationally. But the Lord had showed that when I was studying the Word. I'm like, this is as plain as day. I must be a faithful giver of what the Lord has given to me. The command for Christians to give and support the work of God is the same today as it was in the wilderness. It's the same today. We still are commanded to be the ones. Do you think the unsaved world is going to give to the body of Christ? Do you think your unsaved neighbors are going to pay the rent here? That would be wonderful, but it ain't happening. They have another TV to buy. They have a new car payment to jack up, right? They're not going to pay the light bill at this place. They're not going to help the kids at Bonaire and buy the Doritos that we hand them on Sunday night. They're not going to help Gospel Frasia build new wells, right? And I'm not saying the unsaved world doesn't do things that matter. I know that they do, they do some noble things too. I worked with many unsaved people that do more than Christians do, which is really indicting isn't it? But that wasn't the heart of children of Israel here. I want to show you something about the ministry of Jesus. Do you know that people gave and supported the ministry of Jesus? How many of you knew that? You heard about a treasury box that Judas one time was head of the treasury. Did you know that people gave consistently to minister 
and kept the ministry of Jesus. Now, God would have still kept it alive, be clear. But they wanted to be part of the same tabernacle ministry. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. You may have never seen this. You may have read right over it. The ministry of Jesus was supported by the faithful giving of Christians. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Highlight it in your Bible. You will know this is a model for the New Testament church if there ever was one. Jesus set the model for the church. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. This is a traveling little church. It's an itinerant church preacher ministry. Jesus would travel with this little church of twelve and preach the gospel and disciple and edify everywhere they went. Look at, look at the next two verses. And certain women, a lot of times women have the first sensitive heart to the, hey, we're not giving like we should. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, think of their gratefulness. Mary, called Magdalene, of whom had come out seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance, not their surplus. The scripture is clear. These women faithfully gave financially to the ministry of Jesus from their substance, not their surplus. Even one of them was Herod's stu- um, the wife of Herod's steward. Isn't that neat? Someone close to Herod who hated the gospel and ultimately beheaded John the Baptist, his steward was born again following the Lord, and his wife, Herod's money, was going to Jesus. You work for unsaved companies. And God says, a portion of what I've blessed you with belongs to the ministry of the gospel. Jesus himself was supported. I've hardly ever, matter of fact, I can't ever remember hearing a pastor even preach on this text. And the ministry of Jesus, I, when I, I, I was like, wow, the same model in the Old Testament, the same thing. And this goes on and on. Paul actually says the same thing in, in his letter to the Corinthians, that the model for the, those who uh, work in the gospel would receive from the gospel. All the model is the same, that the people of God give to the work of God for God to do and multiply the work. Whether it's fish and loaves, whether it's the, uh, the income of these women, it's a command. Now, my view on this has nothing to do with this particular ministry. Let me be clear. It has nothing to do with this particular ministry. If I wasn't a pastor, my view wouldn't change one one millionth of a percent has nothing to do with this ministry. This is the word of God, what it says. has nothing to do with this. Um, like I said, even long before I was a pastor, this is clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the people of God are to be faithfully giving of not just their time, of not just their talents, which we'll look at last, but also their treasure for the work of the kingdom of God to go into the uttermost. No other way. Paul received collections from the saints. The book of Acts, we see it. It's the church gave to the church. The one saved world's never going to do that work for us. They have their own things to do, and they're not going to be. They're going to think hard about the cancer society. 
They're going to think hard about muscular dystrophy. And those things, we pray that God would give healing to those things. But those are not the work of the gospel. Amen? Those are not the work of the gospel. And even if you got healed from muscular dystrophy, it wouldn't keep you from going to hell if you were unsaved, right? So all the things that make for the ministry of God's work is from the people of God. And I'll give you proof. It has nothing to do with this ministry. We've had people move here to other states that got job transfers. You know what I never told a single one of them? Hey, now that you're leaving here, you don't have to give anymore. When you go to another city, we don't need it. Wherever you go, you're free. You never have to give to God again wherever you go. Because we don't need it in Richmond. Because we're going. No. has nothing to do with where you live. Matter of fact, I tell them, wherever you go, get plugged into a Bible teaching, Bible preaching, discipleship leading, fellowship church. Plug in there and give your time, your talent, and your treasure because they need God just as much in that city as we need Him here. Amen? has nothing to do with geography, location. It's the same work. There are those that don't believe uh, that there's any mandate for the New Testament church in giving. There's some that don't believe that even the tithing is mentioned for the New Testament. Jesus, of course, affirmed and upheld this. Uh, the tithe and his ministry in Matthew 23, 23 and Luke eleven forty two. So Jesus affirmed this. But even, I don't debate people on that. There's people that are, that are really godly men uh, that have you know, a different view on that. And I don't have an issue with that anyway. Uh, because I believe that when we're saved, uh, we so have a heart of a giver that things like a tithe become blown away over time anyway. I've seen Christian businesses that are so blessed uh, because they long since, what moved, that's like a starting point for people, that that's just not a big deal. It all belongs to God. You know, Abraham, after he rescued Lot, we talked about the two of them. What did Abraham do after he rescued Lot? He gave a tenth of everything to the Lord. This is well before the law. The law had not yet been given. And he did that because he was thankful what God had done. Now, no doubt, Lot, who was also a believer, Lot probably had a different view on giving to the Lord, didn't he? Than Abraham. Lot might have said, uh, Sodom, we don't do that. Uh, we build a bigger house. We don't give the Lord in Sodom. We, give, we build a bigger house. Now, how'd that work out for Sodom? How'd it work out for Lot? Many have pierced themselves through sorrows, pursuing riches rather than actually saying, all that I have belongs to the Lord. Boy, it gets a lot quieter when you talk about money, and Jesus talked about it a lot. I'm sorry, I didn't write the Bible. It's in here. And God actually said that they gave gold, and they gave all of their... They just willingly gave it. But because I know how people are... I'm a, I'm a people. I know how people think. When we receive something, we want to hold on to it. I get, you, know, you give me a $100 free gift certificate to somewhere, my first thought is not, let me give it to this person. That is not my first thought. My first thought is, how can I spend this? <laughs> what are the ways of things that I need that, yes, I have a tiny bit of tread off the bottom of my running shoes which would merit, right? I'm not kidding. I, I would think that, but then the Lord might impress on, hey, you don't need that. Give it to some, that person really needs it, really needs it. That's the heart that God wants us to have. That's the heart Abraham had. 
And I agree that um, is whether, whether you have studied or not, as you grow in the Lord, giving in all aspects becomes very natural through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. These children of Israel, it wasn't that long before they didn't have this heart. They had a heart to give to other things. They had a heart to spend it on themselves, their own pleasures, to rise and play. But God had gotten a hold of their heart. There had been revival in the camp when Moses had come down. The second time, people said, we will serve the Lord. And we want to build this for the Lord. You should want... Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure is found in no local fellowship, where's your heart? Think about it. Across the country, I'm not speaking just, it, this will be on the internet. We actually we have hundreds of downloads uh, for people around the country that will never give to this ministry, and I could care less if they ever give to this ministry. I want them to be saved and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, whether they're in Alaska or Guam or Argentina or wherever it is. The bottom line is, Jesus said where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Right? If my treasure sits with General Motors finance, but none of it sits with the Lord. What does that say? I've got no investment in the ministries of God, but I've got lots of investments in the ministries of man, which is all going to burn up and eventually be in the garbage disposal. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasure here on earth, but where? In heaven. How do you do that? Investing in the kingdom of God. Uh, not, just, not just your local church ministry, but things like Gospel for Asia, Persecuted.org, Compassion, people that are really helping the body of Christ, people around the world who will never see the blessings that we have seen, at least from a gift perspective, and we can actually help them and serve them. There should be a commitment from every believer to give to the tabernacle ministry that God's put in our lives, just like the children of Israel had their own responsibility. Let's look at this last area directed. Clearly, God wants to own our calendar. God wants to own our wallet. Hey, by the way, you can trust him with your wallet, too. You cannot trust a lot of the financial institutions, as we've seen over time, right? They've not always been as credible as one might thought. God, we can trust. He can take a little bit of oil in a jar and never let it run out. So you can trust him. He can do things. He can let sandals never wear out like he did with the children of Israel. We can trust the Lord. But lastly, God not only wants us to faithfully work and worship him, not only to faithfully give to him, but he wants our life's work to glorify him, to direct it. Not, not all of you will... Uh, there may be someone in here that will someday be called to the foreign mission field or to be a pastor Praise the Lord if he does. And some of you, maybe he's called and you've rejected the call. I don't know. But most of you will not. Most of you will be called, as Paul wrote, to live a quiet and peaceable life among your community and be a light and a witness for Christ wherever you are. Amen? That is the call of most believers. And to then, and there's only two kinds of work in the mission field, those that go and those who support those that go. It's the only two options. There's not a third option. Well, I don't do either of those. Those are the two options. So we, we are still called to be part of the work, but you still have a work to do whatever God has called you in your vocation. Every skill you have, every ability you have, 
every aptitude you have to learn a new skill or gift from God. The question is, how will we use it? How will we use those things that God has given us? Now, beyond the importance of our daily lives, we want to walk like Jesus did in our life. I've been thinking a lot about this with my own, with my own time and what the Lord's called me to be a pastor and whatever he's called me to. Sometimes it's encouraging people. Sometimes it's discipling people. Sometimes it's counseling people. You know what I love about Jesus? Jesus was called to be a prophet and a shepherd, right? He was other things too. He was a healer. He was the great physician. You look at the life of Jesus. Jesus was, no matter who you are, you've sometimes been confused about your life's calling. True? Even in your workplace. Am I really supposed to be here? Am I really supposed to be a tool and die maker? Am I really supposed to be a fireman? Am I really supposed to be a doctor? Should I have been something else? Did I get the wrong degree in college? You ever have those thoughts? Why am I here? Even Christians, I'm not talking about why am I born, you know. I'm talking about what am I doing with my life? Is it really what God's called? Everyone has those thoughts. Jesus never had those thoughts. He's the only one that was never confused about anything he did at any second of any moment. From the time he got up to the time he hit his head on whether it be a rock or a pillow or the ground, he was never confused. Every second was busy doing exactly what the Spirit directed him to do And God would say, you're my prophet, you're my priest, you're my shepherd. Today you're going to go through Samaria. Remember the apostles thought, what in the world is he? No one, we don't go through Samaria, Lord. You need to understand, there's one city we avoid, and that's Samaria. Jesus said, we're going there. Because this prophet ministry goes to Samaria. Folks, where does God want you to be? It's one thing to have skills and gifts, but are you using them in accordance with the direction? Remember, Bethel, he was directed by the Holy Spirit. He didn't just have great skills. They were used in concert with the Spirit. You know, our time is, I want to walk like Jesus. How about you? That literally, my steps would be ordered by him. I'm still going to be a pastor, but when I look at the course of a week, sometimes I'm confused. Lord, how much do you want me to study in? How much calling people? How much and prayer, how much over here, how much planning, how much uh, administrative time. And I truly need in my life, and so do you, the gift and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to say, that's, that's enough right there, now move on to this. How about you? You're learning, man, Lord, how do I organize my life and what I'm doing? You want to be directed by the Holy Spirit. You know, David, as he tended sheep, isn't this amazing? We're almost done. David, as he attended sheep, long before he was king, he was learning the skills that would make him the greatest king of Israel. As he was tending sheep, good for young people too. Here's David tending sheep. What did he do with his time? He meditated on the word of God. He wrote psalms and poems to God. What a valuable way to redeem the time, right? He could have had his mind on lots of bad things, couldn't he? He could have used the time to complain about, why am I a shepherd and my brothers are in the armed forces, which has some elite status or something. He didn't. These, he won battles against lion and bear that readied him for who? Goliath. 
God was preparing him. Everything that you and I do is a stepping stone, no matter what your skills are, no matter what your gifts are, and what your talent, it's a stepping stone for God to make us more usable in the hands of the master. You agree with that? It should be that way. You're exact, if you're where you are, you, know, you might say, God, I'd do a new work and a new wineskin of me, but God will take where you're at right now and make it brand new and conforming you and using it as a training ground to grow you, but also using it as a magnifier to proclaim the name of Jesus wherever you're at. School teacher, stay-at-home mom, right? Business person, doesn't matter. God wants us to serve in the world, but not just serve in the world, but serve in the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. If all of you here, and I know some of your jobs and some of the places you work, if all of you are really filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and our brothers and sisters in Christ around Richmond, do you imagine what God might do? There is such a need for spirit-filled men and women and young people in the workplace and in the community and inside the church. We've got pastors that are not filled with the Holy Spirit in this country by the boatloads. Won't even read the Word of God. Won't even hardly use the Word of God. We need every vocation, whether it's child care or education or law enforcement or business or medicine or hospitality or real estate or sports or transportation, music, technology, all of these things, God has given different people skills, abilities, even preferences as what they naturally like. And God says, that's okay. Go do it with all, whatever thy hand finds to do, do it with all thy might. But not your might. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The might and power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's not just full-time work, folks, Christian work. That's all work should be done abounding in the Lord. Driving a truck, answering a call to call center, done in the abounding of the Lord. You never know how God could use you in the life of somebody. How many of you can look back and say, I would never expect you to share Jesus that day in that context? All of us. We miss many opportunities because we're not walking in the Lord. We know the Lord. We're still saved. But we completely missed the opportunity to walk through Samaria because we were so fixated on something else. It's not the way God would have us do. Our skills, our ability, uh, our work is, is valued. But do people know you as a servant of Christ? Do the people around you, do they know that you are a pilgrim in this world just passing through? And you're going to do great work along the way, and you're going to love people along the way, and you're going to care for people, but do they know that you're pointing people to the Savior in your life? Does anyone at work know you're a born-again believer? Uh, No, nobody knows that. I keep that to myself. No, I'm not saying that you stand up and put a soapbox and get a microphone. Everybody gather in here. I brought donuts, and now I'm going to share, all right? Not a bad idea on your last day, but uh, <laughs> it's a great idea on your last day. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we should be doing that on any other day. But do they know that you know the Lord? Do they see you pray? Do, they, do you tell people, hey, I'll pray for you? Do you invite people? All these things. Are you truly using your gifts and talents? Think about inside the body of Christ when you come into this place. Many of you have gifts and talents that would be very valuable to the body of Christ, but you will not give them to God because that's taking away me time. And God says, I want you to give that to, you know, I was talking to a pastor, um, I was talking to a pastor 
uh, of another church on Thursday, getting over 30 of us, and he was telling me that they have some guys in their church, outstanding carpenters. And they went out to Western Virginia to a church that had very little money, very little ability, and they built them an entire puppet stage for them to start a puppet ministry to the local community. What a blessing. Those skills, those men will receive their reward. Jesus said, even if you give a cup of water in my name, you will not lose your reward. Those men will be rewarded because they took carpentry and instead of building themselves, not that it's wrong, but yet another thing, a bigger deck, place for the hot tub, all of those things. I'm not downing those things. I'm saying that at some point you have to say, time out, God's given me these skills. Who can I go serve with them? And they built a puppet stage for this little tiny church. The puppet ministry will probably outdo the rest of the ministry soon because little children will like it. And then they can share the gospel. I thought it was awesome. Uh, we, when I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, we used to go to a much larger church. We had a group of men that I used to be in a Bible study with, and a bunch of them did not have some of the same inclination that I had. You know, I would, like, nail my thumb, whereas they, uh, they might not go out street witnessing with the same veracity or this, that, and the other. But they, they started a little group called Men of Acts, and they would go. They'd do oil changes for women. They would go and do all these different projects and they really serve with their skills. Are we doing that? I'd say in many cases, in most cases, the body of Christ is not. There are really beautiful examples where that's happening, but not near as much as it could, should, and I think the Holy Spirit is directing. Even in this place, I know that the Lord can use the skills and abilities of people more. Are we using our abilities to train others, spiritually to disciple others? We see that not only did... um, uh, Bezalel, have, uh, uh, Bezalel have the gift of the Holy Spirit, but also we see that it had the ability, in verse 34, the ability in the heart to teach. I want to train my replacements in life, right? You and I could be gone tomorrow. I could be gone tomorrow. Who would step into the pulpit and preach with the same, say, Lord, I will not compromise your word, to step in? The Lord would have all of us to teach and train, disciple. And we see that these, uh, each of um, these abilities, using their hearts and their abilities, every one of them, to do every work. We know that God you know, has such a desire for us to do the work that glorifies Him. When I was in the business world, I knew, uh, even when I, I, I would say, right up until, even before I... Uh, walked away uh, last September from the business world right up until the time I left. You know, the world has a system that makes you feel good about achievement. It really does. They're called promotions. They're called bonuses. They're called slaps on the back. They're called public, public praise in front of all your peers. The world has a system to make you feel really good and puffed up. I would have to fight against my own inclination to have an ego about things. If we brokered a huge contract or if there was something, an award given, promotions, by the way, you'll feel just as miserable when it goes the other direction. They have a system for that too. It's called foot out the door, right? Notice that God does neither. He will never kick you out and he will never puff you up. The world, God will only mold you to glorify Him. 
He'll never kick you out. He'll never puff you up. The world will do both. It'll pump you up to say, you're, you're so great. Look at all the things you've done. And you start patting yourself on the back. And when you have a head like that, you think you deserve whatever you go out and achieve for yourself. You become narcissistic in your mind. The world system, be careful. I had to always tune it out. It was always there. The drumbeat of the world's idea of success it was always around me, and it's still around me. There's pastors that I see, and my heart grieves. They do not desire the power of the Holy Spirit. They desire the praise of men. It's as much in the ministry as it is in the world. It's in both places, both in pulpit and in cubicle in America. And God says, not in my house. I want your calendar. I want your thoughts. I want your seconds. I want the treasure that I gave you that actually belongs to me, and I'm only asking for a portion of it back in obedience, and I want your work to glorify me. Amen? Amen. Living sacrifices. Our living, folks, is in dying. Our living's in dying. You know, we can't, you know, we might say that's holy fire burn away, my desire for everything, right? But you can only sing that song if you're willing to really say, Lord, it all belongs to you. And then peace and purpose. You won't get puffed up, but you'll have peace. Isn't that great? Let's close in prayer as we stand. Let the worship team come up. We'll close in song together.